Hello, and welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from, and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. Good morning, church. It's a joy to be with you this morning, and it's really, really, really exciting for me to have to introduce myself because we've got lots of new faces to make sure that... Um, I think most of y'all know, but I'm Burt Palmer, pastor here at Kingwood United Methodist Church, and this is Swap Sunday. So um, I get the joy of being in the vine. I always enjoy being here and to see you all and participate with you. I'm now going to release the Kraken. All you children may go with Miss, who's back there? Miss Whitney? Yep. Go back with Miss Whitney. And um, I'm going to preach short. We may eat all the bread before you get back for communion. So y'all go learn about Jesus. And if you're feeling a little restless and haven't had your cup of coffee, go help with the children. So <laughs> I really want to just sort of, to bolster our children's ministry support, I want to just start putting uh, little post-it notes underneath the chair and uh, during worship say, everybody reach underneath your chair and tell me if you're the one going to help with children's church this morning. So, <laughs> but that might affect worship and I don't want to do that. So the series is about undistanced. I mean, is it? any more obvious in our world today than we've been through something different the last 18 months, right? You can walk into any location, any place, you'll see weathered out patterns of stand here that's about six feet from there. And those are all necessary things that we've experienced together as we move through the seasons of physical distancing. But when we thought about this series, we thought about there's a difference between letting this physical distancing, which early was called social distancing. And I never really liked that because it seemed to be everything antithetical to community. Spread out, don't touch each other, stay away from each other. And those were all medically necessary as we sort of navigated the waters of figuring out what we could and couldn't do. But what we realized is given that context, Let's lean into the reality that when we think about this season of Advent, this season of the preparation for the coming of Messiah, it's all about being undistanced from God. It's about how God draws close to us. And before I read this text, which you've already heard once today, think about this. In every story leading up to the birth of Christ, every single story is about God taking the initiative to invite people into the story. Every single encounter. Mary wasn't sitting around thinking, you know, I'm a little upset with my parents. I'm wondering what would really, really tick them off. Oh, I know. I'll say I'm pregnant and it's God. That'll get your parents' attention. <coughs> Joseph. Joseph wasn't sitting around going, man, life is boring. Camel trade is good. But man, I, let's let something happen in the house. You know, we, we need another baby in the house. That. Wasn't Joseph looking for God? For 400 years, there hadn't been a prophet who had spoken. So there was this expectancy that was happening. What we're going to unpack in these moments following the reading the text is the significance of who these shepherds were. But I want to really sort of step on the toes a little bit that sometimes the routine can be confused with the message. So out of respect to God's word, I'm going to invite you to stand as you're able. Here once again from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. 
And they were keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the glory, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. Read this line for me, tech, church. Ready? This will be a sign to you. What is it? Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. In other words, the praise band showed up. And on earth, peace to those on whom God's favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone back into heaven, the shepherds looked at one another and said, well, Let's go to Bethlehem and let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Seated, and as you are, let's pray together. May your spirit, O God, stand between me and your people so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together would be shaped, formed, and molded into the good news of the gospel of Christ. In whose name we've gathered, in whose name we pray, and in whose name we will seek to leave this place and serve you faithfully wherever you lead. And all of God's people said, Amen. There's so many aspects of the story leading up to Christmas. The church calls it Advent, but the reality is everything about the Christmas season just sort of takes over our lives. And we start singing all the Christmas songs before we ever get to Christmas. For some preachers, that really bothers them. For me, it doesn't. I'm like you. I like just to sing the Christmas songs. And uh, band rocked it this morning. Oh, Holy Night. Love that song. It's one of my favorites. But if we're not careful... We, we let sort of the way in which the glitz and glamour of the Christmas story overtake the narrative from the scriptures. I love the meme that's floated around Facebook that basically has a little boy with a drum. And the text says, whose idea was it that after riding all the way to Bethlehem and giving birth, what Mary needed was a drum solo? You know, there's no little drummer boy in the text anywhere. And yet, that, right, it just becomes part of the text. It sort of takes over. And so what we want to do is we want to say, how can we be faithful to the text and understanding what was going on within this text? Who were these shepherds? Now, the shepherd is a context for you would have this great imagery because shepherds would be regarded as a very honorable estate. There was Abraham, the shepherd of the sheep. There was David, who's known as the great shepherd. The shepherd had a great and honorary term. By the time you get to Jesus, there's been 400 years of silence and there's not this great honorary theme about who a shepherd is, but they're more of a kind of a lowly estate, if you would. And the shepherds were living out in their fields, and so where were those fields? Well, if you look at the aerial map today and you look at Bethlehem, on the on left-hand side, you see the church and the Holy Nativity. And on the right-hand side is what we call the shepherd's field. I'm going to show you a picture in a minute of that. But there's also a Greek Orthodox shepherd's field. There's a field of Boaz. Um, a lot of the times in the Holy Land, different, um, the Franciscans, 
Uh, the Greek Orthodox, the Roman Catholic, they have different places honoring different things. But the distance between what's known as the birthplace of Christ and the church of the nativity and the shepherd's field traditionally felt that the Franciscans are probably the closest because Morna Valley and Terrace, it's kind of like walking from here down to Westlake Houston and across the bridge towards 1960. That's about how far it is. What's it look like today? Well, when we think of a shepherd's field and we're here in Houston, the only hills we have are overpasses. Um, the place is very arid around Bethlehem in Jerusalem. It'd be, it's not luscious, it's more hilly. This is a picture of what it looks like in the shepherd's field today. Now, I've got this picture because what's really fascinating to me about this picture are the following things. Down and to the right are kind of the, the fielding areas, but those are piles of construction dirt. So here's this holy and sacred area that used to be used so much for shepherds and sort of taken over with construction elements. And then in the middle of the screen, what you're actually seeing is that's the border between Palestine and Israel. It cuts right through the middle of everything. That in the midst of the one who comes to be the Prince of Peace, we're still in the midst of conflict. Who were these shepherds? They weren't just ordinary kinds of shepherds. A lot of the hymns talk about the shepherds being lowly and they were out living in the fields. Why were they living in the fields? They were living in the fields because they were a specialized group of shepherds, we believe. These were shepherds who weren't just your run-of-the-mill ordinary shepherds. Uh, these were the goats of the shepherds, right? These were the ones who had some religious and rabbinical training, we believe, because the, cro the, the sheep that they were keeping um, were the ones that would eventually be taken to sacrifice over to Jerusalem. It's fascinating to know that Bethlehem is known as house of bread in the Hebrew, but in the Arabic it's known as the house of meat because it provided the sacrifice for the Jewish faith, the temple in Jerusalem. And Bethlehem and Jerusalem are just right adjacent to each other. And so these were shepherds who would be trained enough to know that if we're going to have this sheep, we've got to take certain necessary steps. So if this sheep is going to have a little lamb, we've got to be careful that this little lamb, once it's born, is taken care of. Because this could be a lamb that's going to be taken over to the Jewish rite of sacrifice. And so it would be without blemish, it would be cared for. They would use swaddling cloths or linen and in, in to catch this little lamb, if it looked like it was going to be a lamb without blemish. Now, church, I hope you know the story enough. This is a pass-fail quiz. If you don't know the answer, keep quiet. If you think you do, speak loudly and put your arm around your neighbor. And once they took that little lamb that was born wrapped in swaddling clothes, a literally four-legged lamb, guess where they would lie it? They would lie it in a manger because it had to be kept without blemish. And so these shepherds, the text tells us in verse 8, they were living in the fields, they're with the sheep, they're tending the sheep. I've always got sort of the Gary Larson far side cartoon questions of the Bible that get me in trouble. Because the question I ask of this one is, who stayed with the sheep? again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first, we would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. 
we believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work. I mean, if we know that these were specialized shepherds, right, and they were supposed to care for these sheep in a certain way, they can't all leave. Somebody had to stay behind. Somebody had to care for the sheep. But wait a minute, an angel showed up, and there's a pretty special message to go to Bethlehem. How do they know where to look in Bethlehem and who goes? They know where to look in Bethlehem because when the sheep were out in the fields, it's one thing when they're grazing, but when that sheep is going to give birth, it's moved into a separate area. And if you do some research in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, and I'm sorry, Micah chapter 4, verse 8, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, you'll find not only the reference to Bethlehem, but you'll hear about the tower of the flock, that there's a specific place that these sheep were taken that when they would give birth and be wrapped in linen and lined in a manger. So we don't know historically. It's not like there's a leftover footprint of a Bucky's in Bethlehem that we can find. But we know ritualistically these things were in place. And so there was something of a journey and there was going to be something searching, but they kind of knew what they were looking for. They were looking for this lamb. So capture the imagery, if you would, that when Mary gives birth... She gives birth to what's known as later in John. Remember, John sees Jesus walking along, and what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, the lamb, the four-legged lamb, would be taken and offered as a sin sacrifice to take away the sins of the people. The one that Mary gives birth to when there's no room in the inn is wrapped in swaddling cloths and is laid in a manger and behold the one who will eventually take away the sins of the world. I mean, it's a powerful kind of image. So something in the shepherd's upbringing trained them to have an idea to know where to look. But it took a special message to be set on the journey. And this, my friends, is where our life intersects with this text. Where has God come near and drawn near to you and visited you and are you on a journey to search for the Messiah, the one who has been born. I'm going to ask, I'm going to make a statement that's really kind of crazy, but I want you to be a little less churchy this Christmas Eve. I want you to be a little bit less like church people at times. I personally take it as a, as a compliment when, um, if I'm going to get my hair cut or I'm in public somewhere and people say, oh, what do you do? And I say, oh, let's have a game. Let's have fun. See if you can guess what I do. Um, it starts off with insurance. Um, I've never had professional wrestler, uh, wrestler yet. So, um, you know, you, okay, we'll ask, we'll ask questions, you know? And so I start off saying, here's the joke about my job. People say that I only work one day a week and half a day at that Sunday morning. Oh, I love that job. And we go by, we go by, I'll say, okay, I'll give you another clue. Whenever I talk, it takes anywhere from three to seven people to pick up all the money. And eventually, I'll give them enough of a clue. Well, it's Sunday morning. And then, then the, the point of demarcation happens. And they'll say, you're a preacher? And you see when they say with a question mark, I take that as a compliment. Because, and then it opens up another doorway of fun. I said, well, yeah. 
why would you say it like that? And every time I say it, they go, well, you don't look like a preacher. Now it's getting even more fun. I say, well, what are preachers supposed to look like? And what they'll eventually get to is, well, you, you look kind of ordinary. And I take that as a compliment personally. If you don't know I'm a preacher. You see, what I want to do is break away the image that, that we have, for me personally, I have a role in the life of the church as a pastor ordained. But I still live follower of Jesus from the waters of my baptism. And every day I want to live first and foremost for Jesus and then do my job as an ordained minister. The parallel I want to make for you is I want you to be less churchy. Church is required. Church is necessary. It's the place that we gather. But we sometimes can do something that we don't mean to, and especially around Christmas Eve. So this is just a real practical way for you to be set on the journey to be a welcoming presence for others so that people don't feel distanced from God when they come, but they feel like an ordinary kind of welcome. If I haven't seen somebody for a long time, and we come to Christmas Eve, and there'll be a lot of folks who'll be coming back across all of our services, right? We'll have a tendency to have kind of a great greeting, right? We see somebody we haven't seen. Oh, Paul Amos! You know, we get that great greeting. We do the bro hug. Oh. And then someone else comes in that maybe hasn't been on a UM Army trip and survived power tools together, Right? And it's not that we don't have a friendship and relationship, but what we're, what we're transacting on is our shared commitment to Christ and an experience that I don't yet have with the visitor, the person who's coming for the first time, and they come along and I go, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Which one do you want to be? Well, don't tell me which one you want to be. Maybe you want to be the visitor. I don't know. But it's obvious there's two different ways. All I'm asking, be less churchy. Look for the people who are coming to encounter the living God in your everyday life, in your experience of church, greet them with the same intentionality as you do the people you're so glad to see and to meet. Because friends, God is drawing near to us. And there's nothing that Mary did, or Joseph did, or the shepherds did, that were trying to summon God's presence. But once they have that encounter, it changes the trajectory of their lives. Have you had the same? Have you encountered God in such a way that you allowed the trajectory of your life to change? When we come to this table of Holy Communion together, the beautiful aspect of Holy Communion is that when we gather together, first and foremost, every single person is welcome at this table. Our band's coming now so they can be prepared to help lead us in song as we share communion in a moment. We gather together between services to share in the bread. So when I uncover this loaf and you see that half of it's eaten, it's them, okay? But that's community. That's together when we gather and we share in the breaking of the bread. So don't let there be a distraction to you worrying, what happened to that loaf? That loaf is the band that is received. And everyone here comes the same way. What you're going to do is you extend your hand and a portion of the bread will be placed in it. Because you can't take communion, but you can receive it. 
And then a, pour, a cup will be given to you, and you're invited to eat the bread and drink the cup. Kneel at the kneelers as long as you desire. Uh, I'll be in the middle with uh, gluten-free. If anyone needs gluten-free, we'll have gluten-free in the very middle. But when we come to this table, we remember these powerful words of liturgy that says, Christ, the one who is cradled in Mary's arms in the weeks to come, invites to his table, not the Methodist table, not the vine table, his table. Everybody who loves him, who seeks to live in peace with one another, that's the only qualifier. You have to seek and desire to live in peace with God and one another. And you're invited to come to the table. And then there's this beautiful moment of confession where we say, we've failed to be an obedient church. We've not done your law. We haven't heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, God, and free us for joyful obedience through Christ. And so we offer that moment that we say, God, would you forgive us and pour that blessing of your forgiveness upon us? And then in the liturgy is this magnificent, what we call the epiclesis. Pour, O oh God, your Holy Spirit upon these ordinary gifts of the bread and the cup and make them become for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one ministry to all the world. Oh God, help us be a little less churchy and a lot more faithful to just be real people engaging your life in Christ. And then Jesus said, when you are gonna gather and pray, Pray like this. Let's join our hearts as the kids come back in. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, it will be done as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.